0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also coming to you from New York City, we've got Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's been covering uh, uh, pandemic and pandemic-related issues and science issues for a long time and was one of the first to warn that we could be where we are now. Hi, Lori. Hey. Uh, and we have Ryan Goodman of uh, both Just Security and NYU Law School, our regular Thursday co-host. Hi,
1: Ryan. Hi, David.
0: And in Washington, D.C., another of our regulars, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed?
2: Good evening, David.
0: Um, So all of you have been very active and very actively commenting on all of what's going on here. And what I thought I would do uh, perhaps to start with a couple of things that you have written recently, and talk about those, and then talk about where we are. Because Ed, you had a piece that came out in the Financial Times today, the day we're taping this, called "The Golden Age of Jared Kushner." Um, seems to be almost a contradiction in terms there, uh, but you do talk about the incredible influence that Jared Kushner has as the leader of. Uh, what you describe as kind of the ostrich coalition within the uh, Trump administration? Can you can you give us a little bit of the background of 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 the piece and why? Because I have my hard time getting my brain around this. We should even be paying attention to this guy. Oh, that's a
2: very good question. Um, uh, I mean, this this kind of piece could have been written any time since the lockdowns began, or in fact, since uh, since Trump became president. Um, But what triggered me in particular was the comments he made on Fox News on Wednesday, where he described the Trump administration's handling of COVID-19 as a great success, a great untold story, um, where they had now hit all their milestones. And we would, as a country, be back to work almost fully by June. And by July, we would be rocking um, so that triggered me to, to look again at, um, you know, what what in Saudi Arabia um, they call the, the clown prince's role in this administration. Um, he has, from very early on, from before Davos in January, been on the side of what you rightly call the ostrich, um, the ostrich side of this. That's known globally, the ostrich alliance, as uh, um, the leaders of countries that are basically denying... Um, that this is a serious epidemic threat, Bolsonaro in in Brazil, Lukashenko in Belarusia and elsewhere. And Kushner has been the sort of chief ostrich, along with uh, Larry Kudlow, Steve Mnuchin, in January, February, arguing that this is an overstatement, that any um, overreaction by Trump will will spook the stock market and therefore um, endanger his re-election. And then on the other side, you have people with whom we normally wouldn't agree, and uh, almost certainly don't for the most part, like Peter Navarro, the China hawks, for different reasons, for their own purposes, saying, look, this is really, really serious. Um, and I think Kushner is back in, in the saddle now. It's uh, He's, of course, been in charge of his shadow task force, which has just been confusing everybody across the administration. It's been undercutting the actual task force led by Mike Pence, making it look relatively competent, which is an extraordinary feat. Um, And he's been the de facto vice president to Trump during this time, as I think he has been really all along. Um, So I think the reason why it's important to focus on this is the rest of the world is looking at America very, very differently. They're looking at America in the way that they might, you know, ordinarily look at, I don't know, the Central African Republic. How do you get to the leadership? It's not through it's not through the scientists, it's not through qualified advisors, it's not through qualified department heads, it's through the family. Um, and so, you know, what Francis Fukuyama calls neo-patrimonial system, Washington for the time being um is governed by the trumps, of the trumps, for the trumps, and um, Kushner personifies that. i feel I feel very strongly about about this issue it's
3: It's a travesty of of what America should be
0: It's hard to argue with that. Um, Lorig, uh, as somebody's been tracking this closely, the statement by Kushner yesterday that this has been a big success that they've hit all their metrics um, uh, really stands out since it comes at the same time that some of the other metrics are 60,000 dead, a million people uh, infected with the virus in the United States, a third of all the people in the world affected infected with this virus in a country with 4% of the citizens. Uh, and on top of all of that, uh, as we learned today, 30 million people unemployed in five weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, to, what's your reaction to what Ed is is talking about and how that's affected our response to
3: this? Well, of course, I love loved Ed's piece. And, you know, Ed and Martin Wolf are the two that I are my go-to every morning. You know, if you've got a column, I've got to read them. Um, Thank you. And as far as the Trump clan goes, I mean, one thing that people are kind of overlooking is that Ivanka also did a presser in which she said uh, from the white house that, um, you know, every single target for the small business people for the entrepreneurs, she loves to refer to uh, has been met. Uh, And we, we got this money out in record time and, I'm just hearing from so many out there in the community about how wonderful it is that my father got this money out the door for small businesses all across America. So, I mean, I think the general message that's come through from day one in this administration since the epidemic started in Wuhan has been everything's under control. Everything's just fine. And if just fine is 60,000 dead, But we know that's an undercount and is most likely closer to 85,000 dead because it doesn't include all those who died at home, uh, never going to hospital and never getting tested. Uh, If that is part of the great metrics, then uh, that's a pretty cruel uh, set of mathematical targets and models. And uh, if 30 million unemployed is part of their metrics, and that's cruel beyond belief, um, I, I, I mean, I just find it appalling. We've never actually had a strategic plan put forward by this administration. We've had some sort of PowerPoints of, you know, states will do this, and then their epidemic will go down, that sort of thing. But we've never really had a strategic plan. and. Uh, I mean, Ed described the, the various factions inside. I've heard of a couple of other factions as well. But it's a fragmented administration where different powers jockey for, for the president's ear. And depending on who he last heard, that's what he mouths when he walks in, which allegedly, according to Deborah Burks is why he suddenly was pushing disinfectant, because he just had a briefing that he completely misunderstood and thought, oh, good, let's all mainline Lysol. Um, I, I don't know, we're, we're dealing with a, a complete fragmented mess, no coherent policy of any kind, but I, w- I will say this to you, David, I'm not sure anybody has a strategic plan. I mean, name a country that's put out a clear strategic plan for not just in the short term, what tactics will we use over the next four months so that we can go back to work. But how will we deal with the fact that COVID will remain in the world and come back again and again? What's our large scale strategic target? What are we trying to accomplish here? I think everybody is still running behind the virus, it's way out in front. We just feel it most acutely because we're accustomed to being a competent nation and we have not seen a ray of competence at any moment. Since January,
0: I think it's pretty fair to say that if, in fact, there were a global committee to get ahead of the virus, nobody would appoint Jared Kushner to that committee. Um, You might, you might, you might, you might have a spot for maybe Jacinda Ardern, for example, but 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 not Jared Kushner. Um, Ryan, you wrote about another dimension of um, this—not a strategic plan, but uh, of what appears to be you know a decision taken and implemented at a high level and across the government um, that was pivotal in all of this and in other words, what I found striking about your article, which you wrote um, uh, with a colleague of yours from the law school, uh, which appeared in the New York Times this week, was that it it, it made it clear this was not purely incompetence. It was not purely being behind the curve. There were some deliberate decisions taken which have to be seen as malevolent.
1: Right, and um, to tie a number of these pieces together, what we were able to do is reconstruct basically the last five days in February and we now know what the president and his team knew then. We didn't know it at the time. So that even at the time, February 26, the Washington Post had reported that Trump had told his aides not to engage in any forecasts about the virus because of his fear about the stock market. But now we know much more about what that meant. So at the time, many people might have thought, well, because the forecasts aren't necessarily good or bad or they're mixed, but we now know um, Alex Azar, uh, HHS secretary had warned him twice, saying that this is a severe concern and that Trump responded to Azar by saying, you're being alarmist. We know that uh, Peter Navarro had warned him in stark terms in internal memorandum late January. We now know from the Washington Post just over the last 48 hours, over a dozen uh, presidential daily briefs included the seriousness of the threat and that there was the steady d- drumbeat in late, uh, starting in like, late January. Uh, we now know that um, the U.S. military's intelligence service in uh, the U.S. Army put it on WatchCon1 because of the likely imminent threat of the pan- of, a, of a pandemic. And all of that proceeds January 25th, where a first-time a CDC official speaks honestly to the American public, and that's Nancy Messonnier. And she says, community spread is inevitable. It's not a matter of if it's when. I had a conversation with my children this morning and we said we have to get prepared as a family. And then here's a quote from her as well. I listened back to the tape. You can have the full, full audio of the, January, the sorry the February 25th interview with her which was a public briefing of CDC. She says, "Quote, now is the time for businesses, hospitals, community schools and everyday people to begin preparing." And then what do you have after that with, after that hour passes an orchestrated plan by the Trump uh, senior officials, it looks like, to lie to the American public. That's the kind of what we come out of the facts with, which is it is not about incoherent uh, policy policymaking at some level and chaotic and something chaotic. For five days, at least, they maintained this other um, public deception, which was Alex Azar, who was otherwise being accused of being alarmist, quickly holds a press conference with Fauci behind him, and he says the virus is contained. And he says, I want to engage in radical transparency with the American public. The virus is contained. Kudlow goes on CNBC and says, it's not airtight, but it's close to airtight. <laughs> you know, within hours, same day. Uh, Trump then goes on to a press conference and he says, it's 50, that's when he says the famous infamous line, it's 15 cases, but it'll be five soon. In a couple of days, it'll be zero. And that shows we've d- done a good job. And one more piece in this uh, five days is, uh, somebody else who's dripping in infamy here is uh, Secretary Esper. This is the Washington, sorry, the New York Times report that said that Esper gets on a video conference with all the military commanders across the world and says, "You need to clear it through me if you're going to come out with anything that is trying to protect the troops, but what would, would, would be um, incongruent with the president's public messaging." Uh, he then deny the spokesperson uh, from the Pentagon denies the New York Times report is accurate. But then Esper has to testify, and he basically testifies to the accuracy of central parts of the facts of, that, uh, of the New York Times reporting. So we now see it then, and I think part of the idea here is to understand that this is just a five-day window into what's been going on kind of across the board and how we have to think about what the administration is telling the American public uh, when it's suggesting that it's you know time to bring back the economy in places like Georgia and elsewhere.
0: So let me bring this back to Lori. And then, you know, as I said, we'll open up the discussion a little bit beyond it. But one of the things that I think the press has done periodically is normalize this and suggest that what was happening was either a policy debate or B, that the president and his aides were lagging the the virus, that the virus, as you said, was ahead of us when in fact something else was going on. They may have been lagging the virus. They may have been incompetent to deal with it. But there was a deliberate effort to suppress the facts, to suppress the actions that might be seemed to be in support of the facts, and thereby to put millions of Americans at risk, um, because as you said earlier, you know, the, the 60,000 number is probably 85,000, but the million number is probably a couple of million, right? And tens of thousands of lives at risk, uh, and tens of millions of people in jeopardy of the the secondary shocks of this thing. Not an accident. Not even negligence. But um, what in other circumstances would be a sort of criminal suppression of information and a dereliction of, of duty in order to serve a political goal.
3: Ryan, remind me, your five-day window, which was a brilliant piece, but that, uh, that came before or after Davos?
1: Um, it's right before it starts on the 25th because it's, I guess, when he's in Davos that he is right. very concerned about Messonnier and then he threatens to fire her for her right. statement.
3: because he comes back from that flight from Davos with his hair on fire. Right. And that's when things go completely ballistic in the White House. And But when he's in Davos, he has a meeting with Xi who assures him everything's under control and he makes those famous statements to the press corps at, at the World Economic Forum saying, ah, there's nothing to worry about, fully contained, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, this is coming at the same time as China is on their like fourth giant lie you know they've gone from narrative one to narrative two to narrative and by then they're in narrative four and it's starting to be all about the great fearless leader has personally you know brought everything under control and so you have the two great leaders lying like crazy almost like they're they're giving each other tips you know hey tell them everything's under control uh, and uh, Certainly, on the China side, uh, it was not only not under control, but every day we're getting more information about just how insane things were in Wuhan and Hebei and how much it had already spread well beyond that region so you know what is going on with with Trump? What are they thinking at that moment what is what are they imagining? I think Trump has all his life and as a realtor, as a hypster, as a studio fifty-four figure, as a man of many women and all this stuff, he's always had this notion that if you bluster it, you put it out there, you say this is reality, then it becomes reality. You know, and he's now met his match. You know, the five days you're talking about your your premise was that they decided to define reality. They decided to say it's under control. The stock market is freaking him out. It's got to come back up. We've got to break records again. Boy, we were going to hit 30,000 on the Dow. Got to get back over there again because he wants, of course, to get reelected. And so it, it, it feels consistently like... Uh, the, the way they're operating is you say this is true, then it must be true. You say hydroxychloroquine cures this disease. It must be true that hydroxychloroquine cures it. You say that disinfectant works on inside the human body. It just must be true. Um, you know, you say that the stock market is feeling great and disconnected entirely from unemployment, disconnected entirely from the collapse of the entire entrepreneurial sector of America. And it just must be true. Because he said so. Because they say so. That's what I got in large part from your piece. That it was just bluster and bluster and bluster. Well, you know, I,
0: I think that's right. But also today, we had a, a, a poll rating the president on his performance and he went up 6 points since the last poll a period during which we surpassed the 60,000 death toll a period during which he told people to put disinfectant into their systems to poison themselves period during which it became even more apparent that We were not in control of this thing from a medical or economic perspective. Ed, he's at the highest approval of his presidency right now. 49% of Americans think he's doing a good job. Maybe Laurie, you know, has it right that this is what he learned at Studio 54, and from Roy Cohn, and from bullshitting the world about his real estate deals. But you know, maybe it's, it's, it's working. I, I have giant, I, in case you can hear me hesitating, I have giant cognitive dissonance with where we are as a country right now. Because this is the biggest calamity that the country has faced since the Great Depression. This man has deliberately invited it and exacerbated it. And half the country says, way to go, boss. It's a
2: profound and really quite sort of troubling conundrum, trying to figure this out. Um, And I share your cognitive uh, dissonance. I'm, I'm in the middle of researching um, something my editor requested, which is a sort of grander narrative piece about the whole thing from day one. So I've been talking to people uh, who talk to Trump um, and who advise him on this and that, either from outside or in one or two cases inside, um, and getting different points of view. And in every case, the interesting conversation is the off-the-record one. And what they all say when I ask them... Why do you allow the president to uh, talk about disinfectant and hydroxychloroquine and all the, these other sort of quack remedies and folk sort of pet theories that Trump comes up with? And they say, well, A, we can't stop him. B, we are tearing our hair out. And C, he turns around whenever anybody ju- does gently try to stop him and says, I'm the one uh, who knows how to win politics? You told me in 2016 that I should stop talking, and I won. Um, so I 'm the one who knows how to do this. Uh, you can tell me about other stuff about the economy or about uh, health, but you can't tell me um, you can't tell me that these aren 't his exact words, but that reality TV theory of politics is wrong, because so far I 've been proved right. and um, if today 's poll isn't a rogue poll. Um, which it could be, you know, this stuff's jumping around at the moment. Public sentiment is jumping up, jumping around. Then Trump's going to be even less likely um, to, to listen to such advice. And the conversations we've all been having about Biden uh, sitting pretty in his basement, not needing to do much, because Trump is, if you'll he, if excuse my French, you know, fucking it up all on his own. You know, never interrupt a, an enemy whilst he's. Uh, um, defeating himself, or whatever that famous um, quote is from from Clausewitz, or Sun Tzu, or whoever it was who said it, um, uh, that that then sort of gets reexamined. Well, how does Biden break through? How, how does Biden make this election about competence? And how do you define competence to a public almost half of whom believe Trump is doing a good job? It becomes a far sort of more Himalayan task if this isn't a rogue poll for Biden um, at this point.
0: Well, you know, it, it, it seems to me that the problem is that the way politics works in this country, they're half of the American people. If you go up to them and say, Trump's doing a bad job, they respond by saying, what are you saying about me? You know, they don't, they don't view it in the context of some objective truth about Trump they view it as part of this culture war. And people have said you can't play culture war. In fact, I think Joe Scarborough or somebody tweeted today, you know, if you can't play culture war against a pandemic because the pandemic wins. And the answer is the pandemic may take its toll no matter what you do. But politically, you know, the issue is up in the air who's, Who's, go, who's going?: Wait to
3: re- wait, a, wait, wait a second. Let me, let me just uh, try to bring a different note into this. You know, I'm sure that the, uh, the Bishop of Canterbury won fantastic polling points in 1665 when he said, "Let's just go burn the Jews, and that'll make the plague go away." It probably played very well in the polls. When, as Jules Michelet tells us in um, Satanism and Witchcraft, his his monumental uh, book that came out in in the late 60s, uh, you know, when entire villages of females were slaughtered so that for decades there was a gender disbalance across much of rural France because they were accused of being the witches that brought the plague in the 14th century, I'm sure it polled really well, right? I mean, the fact that Trump is getting away with polling well by fomenting insanity and uh, posing as if, uh, you know, the metrics. That, remember when he pointed to his, his uh, forehead and said the metrics are in here? What metrics was he talking about? The metrics for the moment when it's safe to go out of lockdown and reopen society and go back to a football game. The the metrics are right up here, right? Well, that polls well, but that doesn't mean any of it is okay. And frankly, to what degree Biden may be polling well amongst Democrats right now and and be a promising figure, I, I have to ask, you know, what the hell is his plan? Most of what we hear from our Democrat leadership in in the United States is critique of, anger against what the Trump people are doing. But how would they be stopping this pandemic if they were in charge right now? What's their strategy? How would they be linking with WHO? What would be different about how we would be pursuing a vaccine? How we would be pursuing a treatment if Democrats were in charge? I haven't heard that from them. And if somebody else has heard it, please send those documents to me. I'd love to see them. But as far as I can tell, we're on a leaderless ship on both sides of the aisle.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, I, you know, I mean, we, you're not even getting into the, the, the role that the Congress has not played in this, right? I mean, they've, they've signed some bills, but they've It's they've too dangerous
3: to convene, right?
0: Right. Um, and th- th- they're literally absent without leave. You know, one thing that strikes me about this, and I will get back to the the core issue in a second, Ryan, is, you know, we've spent, you and I and the guests on on this particular part of our podcast have spent months and months and months uh, prior to all this talking about Trump and impeachment. and And there was always this sense that it was about the case. And it was about whether the case could be made strongly enough. And if only we had the, you know, P tape, if only there was some documentation to back this up, if only there were, you know, a recording of Trump talking to Putin somehow or notes from the Helsinki meeting, somehow that would change everything. And yet, in this particular case, as you have noted in this article, the crimes being done in plain sight—nobody's denying it—and the, you know, we are, you know, we—it—it it doesn't seem to matter in the politics of it.
1: Um. Y- yes and no. I mean, it depends, I guess, if. I think you're right. I mean, I think you're correctly describing the this idea that people thought that the facts, you know, will out or the truth will out, and, and then that will change everything, or enough of um, the American public will be swayed by it, um, and that people can be reasoned with. And so, I, I see that. I guess I, I just to throw in other statistics, I suppose, for the percentages of how well he's doing. I think you could also say he's failing, you know, he's losing. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's currently far behind Biden on a number of metrics. One, national matchups, um, he's down by, I think, like eight. So I think he's polling at like 42, which is really bad for an incumbent. And Biden isn't even really running a campaign right now. Um, when you go to the Rust Belts, he's doing better. And there's this disjuncture between his favorability ratings and then how he does in a matchup with, Biden, he's doing really badly vis-a-vis the American public's view of their governors who are in like the 70s and 80% favorability ratings and the kind of rally around the flag or rally around the leader. Um, So he's not really experiencing that. Um, So in some sense, I think he's losing. Um, In some sense, I even, you know, I think I may have mentioned this before in the show, but I think that we might wake up in November, he gets trounced and we all look back and think, well of course, of course. He never had the mandate. He never had the American public with him as a president would or could use even this opportunity to bring the American public around him. And so I, I don't know um, if it's if I'm as pessimistic about what's breaking through to the American public and more of the American public at least understanding the gravity of the virus i mean the, the american public very high numbers do, do not believe that he's ever telling do not believe he's telling the truth what is it now it's like 15% think that we should open up the economy and uh, lift the mitigation measures what that 15% right I mean, can uh, i ask yeah. A yeah. so a paranoid
3: question Brian? Yeah. yeah here's here's my paranoid question hmm. you tell and i hope you're going to tell me that i'm completely off the wall number 1 the president has been on a tear attacking the U.S. Postal Service and saying he wants nothing to bail out the Postal Service, let him die, right? And that they need to price their postage uh, much, much higher, which of course means it becomes increasingly out of touch of the payment scale of the average American to send letters, right? Number three, we got uh, the possibility that we're going to have a mail-in election, right? And... It's hard not to see these two things connected. Let's get rid of the U.S. Postal Service and we'll have a mail-in election, but you have to use FedEx. And in order to vote, you have to spend $40 or $35 to cast your mail-in vote. And then you know, finally, we have Dershowitz writing this essay in which he says, what would it take to cancel the election? And if the election is canceled, who then under the 20th Amendment Uh, runs the country come uh, uh, January 20th, uh, 2021, and proffers the idea that it becomes somebody um, in the Senate based on longevity of time served, and then it would be Patrick Leahy. Uh, If I understood any of his essay properly, the bottom line for me was, why is Dershowitz, the man who defended Trump in the impeachment hearings, even floating the idea I'm putting out this essay at this time, saying what if the elections are canceled? So I put it together to you as my paranoid fantasy. You know, a we got the lawyer saying what if we cancel? B we've got we want to bring down the U.S. Postal Service, and C we're going to maybe have you vote to uh, uh, vote by by mail, but the mail will be out of price range for. All the unemployed Americans, not to mention disgruntled masses that earn less than $40,000 a year.
1: Right. Um, so, I guess two thoughts I have are one, we could even add a bunch more to that. <laughs> so, you know, let's add Bill Barr to the equation. Right. So, Bill Barr just in the last week said that there would be nothing wrong with having Durham release uh, his report on in the investigation right up to the election. Um, I'd, I think Bill Barr would do many things that are deeply anti-democratic from the justice, using all the power of the Justice Department. He's already suggesting he's going to do that with respect to coronavirus that is not in the American, American's public health and going into litigation and other things like that against governors and mayors. So what, will, what role will the Justice Department also be playing in this crunch period going up to the election? And if there's something that does happen with the election, that it becomes contested or something like that and other emergency authorities that the president might try to claim. So I think there's a real issue there that people need to be truly keenly focused on, which is about stealing an election in, in a very significant way during a moment of crisis and using the crisis for that, uh, for that effort. So that's one. Second is just to, in a certain sense, put a little bit of a rosy picture on it to some degree, I think, is, see, they aren't so confident they're winning. <laughs> Why are they, you know, all of these contingencies and these plan and plans and potentially something's going on with the Postal Service. Um, if, he, if he were so confident that he's doing a great job and is going to be able to win over the American public, I don't think they would need to resort to all of these anti-democratic measures. They know they're losing. I think they, I think, and I think that's also true to a greater degree within, with respect to some aspects of the Republican Party with respect to voter suppression. They know they would otherwise lose if the voters get to choose. Um so you, are, you
0: you are Little Mary Sunshine. I, I really <laughs> have to say it. You know, I mean you dismiss my paranoid fan uh, my my cognitive dissonance, you dismiss Lori's paranoid fantasies, everything is f fu- well no, not quite. I not not quite. I, I'm I'm picking here. Let me go around with a couple of of, of, of of sort of last round questions. You know, Ed, one of the things that strikes me as really bizarre and, and I guess, kind of unexpected about all of this um, is that it appears to be the position of a lot in the Republican Party, including Jared Kushner and what he said and Donald Trump and some of what he said and some of the wackos like Ben Shapiro and some of the people, you know, some of the governors, uh, lieutenant governors across the country, that a certain number of Americans are expendable. That there's just a number, and it's it's okay to live with them dying, particularly if they're old Americans, you know. Particularly if they're you know in their eighties and they're going to die anyway. So what's the big deal? We have an economy. We have stock markets. We have things we need. And I just you know I guess you know again I'm, you know it's a failure of my imagination to think that you never get to a point in the United States where a president or a political party essentially embraces the idea. That, you know we, we, you know, we need to accept that some number of people might die uh, in the national interest. And I'm just wondering what your reaction to that is.
3: It's one of the profoundly chilling sort of aspects of this, that
2: the side of the political spectrum that claims to be pro-life is so cavalier with life, um, is the side of the spectrum that claims to have values that, that prize the intrinsic nature of lives, the non-utilitarian nature of life as a thing that's worth, uh, that, that's worth everything in itself, um, are being um, entirely instrumentalist about lives. These people are over 65. They're not in the labor force. They're, they're depriving younger people of their productivity and their income. That, that is, you know, the crudest caricature of Jeremy Bentham um, uh, 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 or any of the sort of 19th century um, utilitarians um, that you could think of, which is what conservatives are supposed to oppose. People with values, um, self-professed values are supposed to oppose. Uh, These were the people who, when Obamacare was being passed, were talking about death panels because of a supposed rationing implication about healthcare or socialized medicine. They were talking about death panels that entirely theoretical and completely sort of um, demagogic. Um, Now we're in a situation where it's very real, and we are talking about tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of dead old people. Why is it that they're so readily um, able to discuss and contemplate a trade-off between their lives and younger people's earnings? And I think the answer has to lie in race. Most of the older people who are dying at the moment are non-white. There is a perception um, that this is a sort of um, Gotham sort of um, East Coast city problem. Um, and, you know, it, it's not, not hard to sort of then fill in the blanks of who we're really talking about. We're talking about undocumented migrants. We're talking about African-Americans. We're talking about fat people. We're talking about the undeserving poor. Um, and so I find it utterly troubling, you know, nihilistically cynical. Um, to, 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 to listen to figures across the spectrum that, of the right talk like this. Um, but also unsurprising because we know what they're really talking about.
3: When, when the UK was entertaining their herd immunity notion and the debate in the UK was, well, how many would die while we awaited this were they, as, were any of the Tories, as openly Malthusian?
2: I think Boris Johnson was, ironically. And then, um, you know, the uh, COVID-19 um, acquired a sense of humor and decided to tap him on the shoulder. I mean, Boris talked about, um, we will lose many of our loved ones. Um, I suspect there it was a bit more class-directed than race-directed in terms of the subtext. As is often the cliche, and this cliche happens to be truish about the difference between America and, and, and Britain. Um, but you know, then we had this poetic intervention, <laughs> and um, Boris had a road to Damascus experience, um, not only about the seriousness of the epidemic, but also about the importance of the National Health Service, which saved his life. So, uh, so we can we, we can we can thank COVID nineteen for that.
0: So, look, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, I'd like to sort of reverse the way we opened this, where I went to, to Ed and to Ryan and got Lori's reaction. I'd, I'd like to start with Lori and then get your guys' reactions. But, Lori, you know, I, I, when I talk to people about our the episodes we've been doing since these started, and you, your your appearances have been very popular, they're always… They kind of want to get inside your brain. I think maybe we'll try to do something if, if, if you'll agree in the not too distant future where we allow them to pose some questions. But, you know, I think the big question in people's mind is where are we now in this crisis? You know, where, where, you know, is, you know, are we turning a corner? The, the White House has been pointing to this University of Washington data, which says that, you know, by the time things have run their course in August, there will be now 72,000 dead. Of course, if we keep going, the pace we've been going the past week, we'll hit 72,000 dead next week. Um, uh, But so where do you think we are in all of this? And what do you think particularly about the fact that we're right now at the beginning of reopening in in, in like 30 states?
3: Well, some places may be turning a corner, uh, but they're just at a corner, and the long-term path is another 3,000 miles. So, So what if you turned a corner? You have a very long journey ahead of you. You know, when we look at the numbers and the claim that we have something in the neighborhood of a million people have been infected in the United States, well, excuse me, here in New York City and New York State, we've done the sorts of testing that are designed to answer the question, what percentage of your population is infected? And based on those numbers, which is 25% of the city of New York and 14% of the state at large, then we have more than 3 million infected in New York alone. And California, I'm sure, is up in the same ballpark. So We're we're most certainly uh, by any conservative rational measure, we've got more than 15 million infected Americans right now. If the death toll is somewhere in the ballpark of 85,000 so far, what that's an indication of is um, a very terrible path into the summer ahead of us, and then with the return of the virus come late fall, early winter for another round, and then back again for another round, and another round. Anyone who thinks we're going to have a a fully effective vaccine, safe, tested, ready to rock and roll in mass commercial production in the next 12 months, uh, is obviously visiting a lot of pot shops, you know, probably living in California, making ready use of medical marijuana. Uh, this is this is a long, long haul, and what we're experiencing right now is just the first bend in the curve that is giving us a glimpse of a series of, uh, you know, cataclysmic events that are going to be coming, and you know, we as Americans are going to sit back and watch as this thing is a tsunami going across Africa going across the Amazon, uh, going across the Southern hemisphere. Uh, and then, you know, we may get smug about it. Gee, you know, they, uh, that place lost a million people. That place lost 2 million people. Gee, guess we got off really good with only, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dead. Uh, and, and then it's going to come back. And whoever is the leader of America at the time it comes back is going to have to face a whole new kind of fear because it will be an informed fear this time. It will be an enemy that we've come to know somewhat. And the stock market has come to know somewhat. And it'll be an enemy that has already taken many lives and people have experienced that grief and that loss and maybe finally been allowed to hold funerals to say goodbye to their loved one. And now here it comes again. And, you know, I think Ed is right that, of course, it's, it's always the case in America that the underlying subtext is always race and, and frankly, the, his, the legacy of slavery. Um, and so certainly that will play a role going forward into the future. But, you know, step by step, it comes closer to the front door of the gated community step by step, it comes closer to the mansion on the hill. And eventually, even the worst of the racists has to admit that the threat faces them as well.
0: Just got two minutes left. Ryan, do you have a reaction to that, Ben Ed?
1: No, I mean, I, it's just a stark uh, reality check on what we're facing and what Laurie said dovetails with what you know. Fauci had said in the last 24, 48 hours about this is ine- it's inevitably going to come back, when the president is saying, it is it is going to go away um, by the end of this year, and uh, and the false promise that he's creating by that, um, which is really not leaving us prepared. And I also, you know, what both. Laurie and Ed focused on the racial dimension of this and then the global dimension of it, I think, is so important because our global politics are going to be shifted by this and shaken by it in a way in which we're even seeing now in this moment when there's not such a threat uh, that uh, Trump would do the immigration bans. Um, I just can't, you know, it's hard to imagine what the world will be like with who is the U.S. president at the time where it is actually becoming much more prevalent in other parts of the world. Uh, where it's more black and brown people, and then you know this kind of a restrictionist, uh, isolationist view of our own country, I think could be very frightening because that's that is the stress and trauma that uh, breeds the worst out of a, pub, of a out of a public. So yeah, Ed.
2: But just very briefly, I mean, uh, lots of really interesting things said by by all of you, including you, David. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. You
0: sound so surprised. But <laughs>
2: keep going. Um, well, the thing I'm going to take away from this, though, is Laurie's very important mention of the lack of a Democratic and Biden campaign plan here, a strategic plan. And we need that. Um, it, it, they, they need it. Uh, I think America needs to hear it. And I think that's a really important point. Amongst many important points and interesting points that I've heard in this discussion, that's the one I'm going to take away with me.
0: Okay, you know, that the, I will add in 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 30 seconds here that you know, I am very struck by Laurie's points regarding the waves that will sweep over the rest of the world, the return of this the real numbers uh, here in the US whether it's 15 million people who have it now and 85 or 100,000 who end up getting it in the in this first wave that, um, Ed, as, as you know, as we, we talked about on Monday, that there, there are knock-on effects of all of this. And currently, you know, the IMF is predicting that, you know, the world will be in recession, that major economies will be in recession, that 170 countries will actually be, you know, set back economically. The ILO says 195 million people have been put out of work by this. Um, the uh, you know we the prediction is nine trillion dollars will be taken out of the economy. We've clearly seen thirty million people taken out of the U.S. labor force. Um, all of the projections are based on much less than what Lori is talking about. Every single one of these projections of u s down six percent Europe down seven point five percent China only growing at one point three percent uh all you know this this labor impact is all based on something like a v shaped recovery something like the end of this being achieved in the late spring uh and then the world getting back to its business so you know I think you know, I take very seriously, obviously, everything that all of you say, um, I take very seriously um, Lori's uh, outlook and just want to say that it forces you to recalibrate your outlook for everything else. Uh, And when, you know, you talk about what's the Democrats' strategic plan, you know, yeah, what's their long-term strategic plan for dealing with this pandemic, for dealing with future pandemics, but also for engineering what will have to be the most profound economic turnaround in U.S. history uh, in the midst of a world that's going to have to be doing the same thing. And so this may be many, many years uh, coming. Uh, So with that, uh, I want to thank you uh, guys. As always, very thought-provoking. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ed. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Tomorrow we're doing a special uh, episode. Uh, we did one yesterday, a special episode on North Korea. Tomorrow we're doing a special one in conversation uh, with a fellow Californian like Lori, Ted Lieu of the United States Congress, who's a very thoughtful guy. Uh, and we'll be back again with our regular episodes again next week. Uh, in the meantime, stay healthy, everybody. Thank you.